Welcome to another episode of the Sparkcom Podcast. My name is Manny Turan. I'm Adam Hartung. And this is a show where we talk about trends, innovation, and what's coming next. Adam, how are things in Vegas? Great. It's election day, and I'm excited for how things turn out this evening and over the rest of the week. Well, you know, the election uh, reminds me of some, of some very big things that we talk about day in, day out, and that's the concept of a trend. And we use the term uh, massively important because that's what we feel uh, that the trends are for your business to give it longevity and sustained success. So, Adam, give me an understanding in your career uh, why trends became so important, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, I was struck more than a decade ago, probably more like two decades ago, at how people would identify a trend and then just completely space out and, and not apply it to their business. And I mean, the one that got me the strongest was when, the, when we started to go mobile, right? And when we first began going mobile, uh, you, everybody had a cell phone. And I would go into meetings and I would say, okay, so what does your company have on, you know, that I could see here? What's your, is your web, do you have a website? Yes, is your website visible on my mobile phone? And they didn't do it. You know, they didn't ever go mobile. And I would say, you know, if I was sitting at lunch having a conversation with a friend and I wanted to recommend your business and I gave him the name, the first thing he'd do is they'd pick up the phone and they'd look for your business. So if everybody's going mobile and everybody's got a phone, why haven't you applied your business to that technology? Why haven't you incorporated it? And oftentimes people would say, well, my customers don't want it. You know, my customers don't think about it. My customers aren't those kinds of people. And they would have all these excuses that were just blatantly, actually, I don't want to take the time. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to put the energy into it. So that was, like I said, that was well over a decade ago that I started to see this sort of gap happening where people could see something, but they wouldn't apply it to their business. And the fact is, is that often if you're slow to recognize a trend, it's really, really painful. And so like, like a good example that I was thinking about this week is Exxon is just getting pummeled. I mean, 25, 30 years ago, Exxon was this company that seemed untouchable, right? Incredibly valuable company. It bought mobile, came Exxon Mobile. Just giant, giant infrastructure company. And, you know, had thousands and thousands of employees and operations all over the world. Just a very, very strong company. And about five years ago, though, if you looked around, what you could see was that things were changing in a way that should make a big difference to Exxon and it needed to adjust. And what I mean by that is we saw the emergence of Tesla. And you say, well, wait a minute, what? Tesla was a small company. It was tiny in, in 2015. It was tiny even by the auto industry standards. And the point was, yes, it was a small company, but what was happening was people really liked the cars. People had gone out and bought the Roadster and sold, they bought every single Roadster that Tesla would make at a time when the auto industry said, you can't really get anybody interested in a two-seater Roadster. And then they came along with the Model S, or Model, yeah, the Model S, and you know, they were like, oh, that's who can make a car company out of cars that cost as much as a Mercedes S-Class, you know, dollars $80,000, $90,000, $100,000. That'll never work. And sure as the world, they sold every single one. They always had a backlog. And when they announced the Model 3, well, you know, all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people slapped down two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 on a deposit to get into a queue. And that's a trend. And you look at that and you start saying, wait a minute, what we've got here is it's kind of like those little telltales that are on a sail, on a sailboat. You know, you, you look at those telltales to see what direction the wind's starting to head into. And this was a pretty serious telltale that, you know, people were very, very serious about these electric cars. 
And despite everything the auto industry might say about, well, okay, we've got range fear, you know, we'll run out of electricity on the middle of a drive, or, you know, that it's an uneconomical vehicle. If you look at the total cost of ownership, it's still cheaper to own an internal combustion car. And the auto industry was publishing all that, but at the same time, wow, people were buying all these cars. So that was the telltale, that the market was going to shift. And you say, okay, Adam, that's interesting, but what the heck does that have to do with Exxon? And, and that's the point where I think it breaks down. Most people might say, I want to look at something like a Tesla and see, well, how is that going to affect GM? And that's as far as they'll take the analysis. Or they might even say, I want to think about whether or not it'll affect me, and I'm not thinking about buying an electric car, so I don't really want to think about it at all. Okay, if I'm not going to buy a new car, or if I do, I'm going to go buy some gasoline-powered car, I'm already convinced of that, and I'm not going to think about it. But if, if you thought just a little bit longer about it, you start saying, wait a minute, if, if people really want these electric cars, what are we seeing happening in terms of the impact on the people that make the raw ingredients that go into those cars, right? What's right. going to happen to the suppliers? And the biggest supplier to cars is gasoline, right? Gasoline and diesel fuel. I started saying, wait a minute. Okay, so if these electric cars really start coming on strong, demand for gasoline will start to go down. Demand for oil will start to go down. And if you started to build some models around that, and you started saying, wait a minute, this uptick, and you started looking now, let's go look at Europe. And you started seeing, wow, in some countries like up in Scandinavia, 70% of cars were already EVs in 2015. And I'm like, whoa, holy cow, it's not just an American phenomenon. Then I looked at China. Oh, wow, 15, 16, 18, the growth, the percent of all cars in China were EVs, and it was a growing trend. You started saying, man, this is going to snowball, and as it snowballs, it's going to happen much more quickly than we think. Because simultaneously, we saw improvements in renewable energy. The, the quality and the capability of solar panels was getting much better. You can now put them on top of your house, and you can put enough solar panels on your house that you almost didn't need to be connected to the, to the electric grid anymore. And wind turbines were coming on strong. And so the demand for fossil fuels overall was dropping. So you start to take these two trends. And you've got 2015, you start saying, these will collide in a place that's going to put a world of hurt right. on Exxon. I mean, now, let's start, I mean, it's going to hurt, put a world of hurt on the industry is what's going to happen. So the smaller independent ones that are out there, you know, drilling holes in the Permian Basin of West Texas, those guys are going to get slaughtered. But it's going to ratchet all the way up to where it's going to hurt an Exxon. But did you think there was anybody at Exxon producing plans or saying anything? You could go research everything that came out of the oil industry, and nobody was predicting a dramatic decline in demand. Nobody was doing it in 2015. But in fact, what did we see? Yes, all of these trends kept moving forward to the point where Exxon started to see its demand crumble. And then once we had you know, an external disruptive event, which was COVID-19, you know, then demand just fell off a cliff. And even today, there are people that sit around saying, well, the issues with Exxon are short term. You know, once we get past COVID, we're all going to go back to using as much uh, oil as we always had. Well, that's not true, because now what's happening is we're using Zoom, right? We're using this new technology. So this technology has been around and we've been able to have virtual meetings for a long time, but we just didn't do it, right? Because we were all stuck in a rut going to the office. We had to drive to the office. We had to get on planes and fly to meetings. We were stuck in that rut, but COVID made us rethink that. So what happened? Well, now that trend, which is already a growing trend, you know, you already had people using Skype and you already had people using Zoom. It takes off because people start to learn the technology. And not just individuals, but corporations. And now corporations start saying, wait a minute, 
why are we paying for people to get on these planes to go to meetings? That's a pretty hefty expense. You know, we already are trying to kind of figure out how to cut our travel budgets. It looks like this means we could cut them a lot. So we see the whole oil industry just sort of collapsing in on itself. Yeah. So yesterday I did a little exercise. I looked up the value of some companies. You know, Exxon's worth about, uh, I think, $80 billion. General Motors worth about $50 billion. Uh, Boeing, I think, is worth about $80 billion. Um, then you get to the airlines like United and American, and they're like, they're not even worth $10 billion each. Zoom is worth $144 billion. Zoom's worth more than any of those companies, right? That's, that's remarkable. Yeah. Now, so five years ago, the important thing is, what were you thinking about five years ago? If you were ahead of the game, you were thinking about people going mobile, you were thinking about people using these technologies, and you were thinking about ways to make your business more effective, you know, by being more mobile and for asynchronous meetings, these major trends. But if you weren't, you got caught by COVID, and then you were trying to play makeup, right? And then if you're really not good, you're really stuck, because you're in a business that was certainly stuck with physical meetings, you know, and there are some organizations out there like that and other people that put together meetings uh, uh, where they, that was the primary thing they did, convention and visitors bureaus, right? Uh, the whole meetings industry. I live in Las Vegas, right? The whole city was fueled by conventions and we shut all those down, right? So you're on the back end of that trend because you didn't see it coming and what do you get? Oh man, I mean a world, world of hurt. Do I think the oil demand is going to come back and it's going to be able to, to, to put Exxon back on top? No way. Why do I say that? Because we know China has already got its economy back on track, but its consumption of oil is nowhere near what it was back a year ago. So we know the rest of the world is going to be the same way. Once we get through the pandemic and they come back, yeah. using these technologies is going to continue. Saudi Arabia and Russia are now in a major you know, economic battle over who's going to have market share. And you have to think about it. Those people, those two countries have to have oil sales. That's their, that's their lifeblood, right? Yeah. And Exxon's going to get crushed because they're not going to go out and, and give up on those sales of oil. So as long as you have two, two countries, Saudi Arabia and Russia, that are you know, controlled by one leader and they can go into that battle and fight, the big loser is going to be who? Exxon. So now we have this giant mega company that's literally getting crushed, getting crushed and unlikely to come back. And, and that's the kind of trend analysis that I wish I could get more people thinking about. Don't just think about what the short-term implications are. Don't just think about, oh, that's an interesting factoid that everybody's got a cell phone. Start thinking about, well, wait a minute, if everybody's got a cell phone, how right. can I use it, right? That would have been good 15 years ago. Exactly. I think that's what we want to try to get people on our podcast to think about. How can they try to use new technologies, new ways of doing business to get a leap on their competition to be more successful? Yeah, I did. Uh, so I, I also own a, a solar panel cleaning technology business. And about five years ago, we were getting lots and lots of inquiries from the Middle East because uh, the Saudi oil barons and others were thinking, okay, things are gonna happen here. And so they launched lots of funds there's a tremendous amount of funds in, available in the Middle East uh, to, to basically help to sprout new industries. And they're really pushing towards renewables. And, and I would say looking at the trends again is they made a good attempt initially. But then what happened is the, the gravy was too good for them to not go with continuing business as usual. 
So now you've got a little bit of emerging economy with renewables, but they really didn't do a big switch. I mean, they're still digging oil, right? They're still pumping it out. They're still processing it. And, and they're right. still a global player because it really didn't make the full move. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of people at the helm of these companies, they must have blinders on because how else do they not know where the world's going? How, I mean, I guess, when you live and breathe trends, it's everything you see the trend and everything, right? But a lot of business leaders don't have that foresight yet. You know, the same time that I was uh, in 15, let's go back to that point again, I'm talking about oil. At that point, and even previously, I'd been talking about the fact that the retail industry was just going to get crushed. I mean, it's going to get changed. Why? Well, because everybody could see e-commerce was growing, right? And Amazon was getting better. I used to tell people, if you can only buy one stock, buy Amazon, because it's, you know, it's going to run for another 20 years in terms of, you know, get, continuing to increase its revenues. People say, well, it's not making any profits. I say, you don't worry about profits when you can grow at 25 or 30% a year. I mean, you're just going to, that's, you're going to end up with this huge company. And so I went one day with a, I was in a meeting and literally a fellow sitting next to me, we were having lunch. And uh, didn't really know the guy. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I run a real estate investment trust, a REIT. And I said, oh, that, that's interesting. And then he, I said, he said, yeah, actually, our REIT is specifically in retail space. So we own retail real estate. And I looked at him and I said, what do you think about Amazon? And he goes, oh, Amazon doesn't use our, our stores. I said, of course not. That I mean, like, I was one of What do you think about Amazon in terms of your real estate investment trust? And he says, why would I even think about that? They're not a customer. He says, I, I'm thinking about you know uh, the the dollar stores, Dollar General, Payless Shoes. Um, I'm thinking about um, Radio Shack. These are my customers that are going to fill up the buildings that I own. And I said, yeah, but what if they go away? And he just stopped, looked at me and goes, what kind of a crazy statement is that? You know, what do you mean, what if they go away? Radio Shack isn't going to disappear, you know? He was convinced that all these retail stores were just going to always be there. And I said, but it can't always be there if e-commerce continues to grow. Well, now, look where we are. I mean, his company is in horrible shape. The real retail real estate investment trusts are all terrible. Yet... Even today, you can go out to an, a site like Seeking Alpha, which is a nice place to go read um, a lot of reviews about companies. They do a lot of investment analysts and publish things on SeekingAlpha.com. And you'll find people talking about how you should buy a real estate investment trust in retail because its payout ratio is yielding a dividend of 11% or 12%. At a time when you, know, you can get nothing for your money, this is a 12% yield. But that sounds like rearranging the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, doesn't it? Right, right. And what's crazy about it is they say, well, you know, if we look at the cash flow from the last two years, then the coverage ratio is very, very high. So we think this dividend is going to be paid forever. And also because they have these fixed contracts where they've, they've signed up with these uh, mega retailers, you know, they're going to keep getting paid even through the pandemic. And so the analysts are all acting like there is no pandemic, like there is no growth in e-commerce. Why? Because they're looking in the rearview mirror. They're doing all their planning, looking at historical data, and they're not really spending much time looking into the future. And I say, well, wait a minute, where's the world going to be? I mean, it, you don't have to be a brilliant person, right? Any average person can go down the street today and see all the stores that are closed that aren't going to reopen, and they can start thinking about the stores that probably won't make it three or four years. So you start saying, okay, you know, what should I do about real estate? And the first thing you say is, I don't want to be in commercial real estate. 
right? And if you own a commercial real estate building, I'd recommend selling it because it's going to be a, a big problem. Right. Exactly. That space is going to just sit there empty and, uh, you know, the bank's going to foreclose. And if you're the owner, you're going to be stuck. Yeah. So I have a lot of friends that are, are commercial real estate agents and uh, I look at their portfolios uh, and I think about you just drive around and you see all the signs up and you think of, uh, you know, real estate again in here with all this available real estate for um, commercial side. But on the flip side, the real estate market for homeowners is going red hot. Yeah. 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 Well, again, yeah. Again, again, look at short term right? versus long term. So in the short term, we have incredibly low interest rates. When I bought my first house, my interest rate on my mortgage was 17%. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, it was just so expensive that the cost of the home was dramatically limited by, the, you know, how much could I make as a payment? And then this interest rate was so high. So it, it really meant real estate prices struggled to go up. Even though the baby boom generation was there, I was the end of the baby boom. We had all these people building up houses, you know, people wanting places to live. They want to get married. They want to have children. That was the intrinsic demand of growth, but it was compressed by the, by the interest rate. Now that's all dropped, you know, come down, 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 down. And mortgage rates are now like 2.75%. So in the short term, people want houses because, hey, look, interest rates are so low. Let's buy a house. But what you have to look at long-term are the demographics. Baby boomers are dying, right? We've come to that point that, well, maybe they're not dying because we're going to live longer than we have in the past. But people in their 70s and 80s don't move. They're not home builders, right? They're not, they're not having children. They're not spending money on new furniture. They buy a couch, planning to use it the rest of their life, right? And so what's going to happen is that the demand, the inherent demand for housing based on demographics is not growing anywhere near like it was growing back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so we have this real estate boom happening right now in residential real estate. Will that residential boom continue? Hmm. Not unless we have a lot of immigration, right? Yeah. get a lot of immigration, yeah, it can continue. But right now, for the last four years, there's, you know, actually for the last 12 years, we've seen a pretty big damper on immigration, right? There's been a lot of people, uh, a lot of government policies trying to hold that back. Now, as we age, I think that the, the policies will change. People will recognize they need, they need immigrants that can come in and live in these houses and do these jobs and create a better economy so we don't end up like Japan where there's only three workers for every retiree. I mean, I'm hopeful that our government politicians will figure these things out in yeah. immigration balloon. But we always have to take it, these things and look at what's the short-term impact and what could be causing a short-term gyration like today, real, residential real estate values going up versus what's the long-term trend. Yeah. So um, what would I say? I would say today, if you've got a house and you think it's gone up in value by 30, 40 or 50%, might be a good time to sell it and start thinking about downsizing thinking about how you could transition into something that's much less costly. So if you have a house that was worth, say, 800000 like was worth 500000 and it's suddenly worth 800000 could you sell it for 800000 and then go find another house for 400000 right? That one thing I like today. Sure. One thing I like about uh, election years, especially uh, the big four, is that uh, it, it's kind of a bookmark um, and, you know, some things change immediately, like, for instance, many states adopting uh, the legalization of, of uh, cannabis, right, for yeah. recreational use. That, that'll happen instantly, day one. But other things are more, um, they evolve a little slower or a little faster. So it's always interesting to think about trends as they pertain to, to politics, 
because those are the, uh, the rocks in the water that may slow down or speed up the stream, but it's not going to stop the stream. Right. And, That's you know, I talk to business owners sometimes, and, and uh, it's not that I'm painting a gloom and doom. It's just a reality, and a lot of them are just, are just stubborn. They don't want to see what's happening in the industry. They're saying things like, oh, it's, we're just going to be back. This is a blip in the radar. In, you know, nine months, we'll be back to normal, and the, everybody will be moving back into the retail stores, and I don't have to worry about uh, where I get my, you know, my money from if they own, like, real estate and commercial real estate. Again, um, regulations, as you say, have the impact of slowing a trend in, in its development. And what that does is, I want to go back to your analogy of a stream in the pebbles. Whenever you keep throwing the pebbles in the stream to try to, to stop it, eventually you might build a dam. But what does the dam do? It creates this enormous amount of pressure behind the dam to try to break through the dam. That's what happened with cannabis, right? For many, many years, it's illegal. You can't have the product. What does it do? It makes it into a black market product. But the whole time, this pressure is building. And so you had some users, but then you had the older people, as their children got older, they said, wait a minute, my child's career just got you know flummoxed because she was arrested or he was arrested on a small cannabis charge. Maybe somebody had two or three small cannabis charges, and with three strikes, you're out policy. Suddenly, people are going to jail for what people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s said. That's ridiculous. So this builds this pressure, to, and then what happens? Suddenly, we say, well, let's legalize it. And once one state, Colorado, legalizes it, what do we see happen? The dam starts to burst. And boom, now everything's out there, and we've already done one podcast about cannabis and thinking about how to get into that business. But what's it mean? It means it's going to become pretty much nationwide legal. Um, because you just don't stop a trend, right? You can put the regulatory issues will can act like a dam, but eventually the pressure of the trend will burst through that dam as we're seeing happen with cannabis. That's probably what's going to happen with immigration. You know, uh, in Japan, it's a society that's uh, been anti-immigration for hundreds of years. We're a nation built on immigrants. So to say that we're going to end up like Japan would seem to me to be an unlikely outcome, right? What's more likely is people would say, you know, the growth of our society, the growth of our economy has for the entirety of the United States of America been dependent upon having immigrants. So let's return to that. And so as we build the pressure, and we see leaks of that, right? You see on the news when, when, when things are happening around immigrants and their protests, right? And, and people are making the, asking to pass bills and change legislation and change the role of immigration customs enforcement, uh, change some of the leaders of these organizations. Those are indications, those are telltales of the building pressure around trying to change the way we deal with immigration in our country. And you have that happening on, let's say, the southern border with the kinds of things I'm talking about. But also, you have employers like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple and you know these big employers saying, we cannot uh, hire enough people at an affordable rate. Yep. So we need more trained people. Therefore, we need more immigrants. So that's that's the pressure yeah. that will eventually break through the regulatory um, dam. And I actually I went through this when I uh, ran my own business. Of uh, we were a design firm, so I hired engineers. And uh, whenever we needed to, uh, to bring on more staff, we would go out and use one of these services like Indeed or whatever. And uh, I would say ninety percent of the applicants were were students on an H-1B-1 visa or wanted to have an H-1B-1 visa. And for me, it created additional barrier for growth because I couldn't hire enough people. And the right. ones that I could hire had regulations and stipulations on them. So it wasn't a, a sort of free exchange. It was, it always had things layered on top of it. 
And I think that'd be a good topic for the future is to discuss the whole immigration uh, side on, especially how it pertains to trends. I'm going to kind of wrap this up with another example of a company I worked with recently. They made, um, uh, they made, um, and I want to say antibodies, that's the wrong word. Uh, they, they made uh, the pharmaceutical products for livestock. Okay. And they had predicted their market would grow and it was a very predictable business that they were in. And they, they asked me to take a look at it. They said, we really don't understand why we should be worried. And I went out and I did a simple analysis. I said, okay, What's happening in terms of the growth of, of vegetarians and vegans? Well, you know, they were such a small percent of the population, nobody cared a few years ago. But now, believe it or not, about 7% of the population are vegetarian or vegans. The interesting thing is that's growing at about 18% a year. And it's much higher and growing much faster in people under the age of 35. So your meat eaters are older, they're dying, and younger people tend to be there. So, that's, that's getting at the base demand for this livestock that they're making the pharmaceuticals for. Number two was what kind of EPA rules? Well, whenever we had the hurricane come through South Carolina, the big damage was caused by pig farms that got, when the hurricane hit, all the water comes in, all the um, poop, you know, from these animals ended up in the water supply, big problem. So we have now people really concerned about these livestock environments and the kind of uh, environmental issues that are being created. And that was a small issue, but again, it's becoming bigger as time goes on. Number three, you have people that say, I don't want any kind of antibiotics in my animals. I don't want them filled with pharmaceuticals. I think that's bad, you know, I'm worried about what it does for my family. Again, very small a few years ago, but growing. And then the fourth one was plant-based proteins. You know, um, Asia, they've eaten um, plant-based proteins for a very, very long time. It's not very common in the United States, but then we started to get what we called, you know, the artificial meats or the meat substitutes, you know, the beyond meat type things. Again, very, very small, but you took a look at it and say, wait a minute, if people just started doing substituting once in a while, you know, like the older generation that's eating meat every single meal, so, well, maybe, you know, once a week, instead of a hamburger, I'll have a beyond meat sandwich kind of a thing. Then all of a sudden you start to see dramatic explosion in the growth of plant-based meats. So yeah. we have five trends that are all saying that demand for livestock will decline. Demand yeah, for chicken will decline. And they had not factored, because they looked at each one of those and they said that each one of them was small and therefore, you know, I'm not worried about it. But when you put yeah. them together and you added the growth rates, it threatened their very viability and threatened it within three years. Right. And I think just to, to sum up today, wrap it up here, uh, uh, these trends just take a, uh, looking at trends just takes an open eye and uh, looking at what surrounds each business. So any final words for us today, Adam? Well, I hope everybody got out and voted this week and I'm looking forward to the future. It's gonna be so bright, I just can't imagine. All right, thank you very much, Adam. We will talk to you next week at our podcast, The Sparkcom Podcast. Thank you.